Today's guest, Robin O'Brien, has been called Foods Erin Brockovich. But do you know what Erin Brockovich said about her? She said, in the absence of the truth, all of us stand helpless to defend ourselves, our families, and our health, which is the greatest gift we have. Robin O'Brien's courageous pursuit is an example of how we can all do our parts to protect the health of our families. That's what it really comes down to. Your personal health and that of your family is the most precious thing on earth. And it's your job, it's your privilege to do everything you can to protect your health. But it can be really hard to go it alone when it comes to health. There's so much conflicting advice about what you should eat or not eat, how you should work out and stay active. There's even different opinions on psychology, like how tough you should be on yourself about sticking to a diet versus simply practicing moderation. And even once you figure out what the right combination is for you and your family to stay healthy and strong, it's a whole other challenge to follow through on that plan. As Tony says, knowledge is not power, it's potential power. Execution will trump knowledge any day of the week. So how can you effectively execute your health plan day after day, month after month? Many people have found incredible results by using Results Coach. Coaching is one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself and your family. A Tony Robbins Results Coach will help you identify where you are in your health today, where you want to be, and help you create a plan to get the healthy body you desire and deserve. But more than that, they'll be there with you every step of the way to hold you accountable and make sure you stick to that plan and get the results you're after. To get you started on that path to physical energy and long-lasting vitality, Tony is offering podcast listeners a free results coaching strategy session with one of his top coaches, a $200 value. Visit TonyRobbins.com results to claim your free session today. Hi, it's Tony Robbins. Welcome to the Tony Robbins Podcast. I'm here with Mary B, Miss Buckite. Tony, this podcast shouldn't be making me hungry, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> it might make you hungry, but I'll tell you, I promise right now, that probably sounds like an exaggeration. This podcast, without exaggeration, without hyperbole, truly could save your life or a member of your family. And I really want you to listen because, you know, we all know how important health is. And we know how important fitness is. And most people in our society are, you know, peak performers. We're out there to be as fit as humanly possible. So we're strong. So we perform at the highest level. And Robin O'Brien, the one we introduced you to, was one of those people, a financial analyst, a genius in the, in the financial business. And she got assigned to the food industry. And I'm telling you, the things that you're about to learn really, truly will answer questions for you that you may not have been able to answer before. Like, you know, why has there been this massive, dramatic increase in the allergic response to foods that we're seeing here for asthma for our children. And those answers are about to be. I can't, this, this woman is so smart. We first met, Tony and I first met her when Tony brought her to our Platinum Partners event in Sun Valley, Idaho, a financial wealth event, Yes, remind you. And I was like, what is, you know, Annie's macaroni and cheese lady doing here? <laughs> Turns out, not only did she teach us a fact that we're not the only family in America that likes Annie's macaroni and cheese bunnies because General Mills bought Annie's macaroni and cheese for how much? Guess. I don't know. You got a, you got a fact though. I here. do have a fact. $820 million oh God, for those little gluten-free dollars. bunnies. Well, they also they also made that little, what's that white popcorn that's so good? What's it called? Smart food. Yeah, they made smart food as well. I can't believe that. Yeah. The reason I'm telling you this, we're sharing this, is because health is the ultimate wealth. And I have my platinum partner, some of you know, who are the highest donors to my foundation, and we travel the world and do these incredible trips. And one of those trips last year, we brought in Robin. And you know, if you can imagine, every day we had a different billionaire, somebody who started from nothing and became a billionaire. 
and they shared their principles, their tools, how to invest, how to protect yourself. It's one of the best programs we do every year for the plots because it's new every year. There's new challenges to face. And so when I introduced Robin O'Brien, I had to first kind of give people that she was an analyst, knows the food industry, like there was opportunity. But then I said, here's the truth. The ultimate health, is, I should say the ultimate wealth is health. And this is a woman who's going to show you how to save your life or somebody. You, I give the same promise I did to you, someone in your family. And I got these smirks from people who normally <laughs> like me and respect me. They're like, yeah, yeah, what do you mean? But when they were done, people came up to me and I was getting high fives and hugs and people saying, oh my God, thank God you brought this woman in. Because here's Robin's background. She was not the kind of person, she was the kind of person that would roll her eyes if you know, she had a party for her children. She has four kids, mother of four, total professional. And somebody comes over and said they had a peanut you know, butter allergy or something. She just roll her eyes and think, what does the world come to? This is so absurd. She had no interest. Till one day, two things happened. One, she got assigned to studying the financial aspects of the food industry. And secondly, her daughter got deathly ill from eating some eggs, if I remember correctly. And it put her on course to find the connection that she now has found that's made her known as the Erin Brockovich of food because she found the connection between big food and big money. And she created an allergic reaction in the food industry because she's not some just emotional person going out there making emotional comments. She studied the data. She's a scientist in her core. And what she began to say is, are we suddenly so much more allergic to food or is what we've been doing to our food the thing that we have an allergy to? And she found it's the latter, not the former. So she ended up not only doing this, she turned it upside down and she's begun to create a, a new awareness all over the world. She wrote a great book that I highly recommend you pick up after the podcast. It's called The Unhealthy Truth, One Mother's Shocking Investigation into the Dangers of America's Food Supply and What Every Family Can Do to Protect Itself. We, you know, we joke around here in this house, every once in a while, Bonnie Pearl and I have to send Big Tony over here to the grocery store. <laughs> Only, I mean, every once in a while, like once a year in a snowstorm, the big guy has to be the one to go out. And we give you, I mean, who in your in your defense tone, who can keep it straight between is it gluten-free? Is it organic? Is it kosher? Is it local? Is it pasture-raised? Is it you know, you name it. Is the label cute? We give him, and he does all right out there. But how can any of us stack up to this? And I think what's great about this podcast is you're going to get the answer to that question. There are just a few things you have to know. If you don't, it's like, you know, I always tell people, ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is poverty in the financial world. And ignorance is disease and pain, and in some cases, literally death in the food world. It's crazy to even think, and it sounds reactionary. But when you listen to this podcast and you do the research... You're going to find out that the things that are on your dinner table, some of them are truly toxic. And some of the things you think are happening to yourself or your family or your children that are making them sick, you think it's something they're catching at school and it's something that's being put in their mouths. This will horrify you, it'll shock you, but in the end, I think it'll excite you because it'll give you answers that can give you a much healthier and more fit life. Look, we live in a society where 75% of our society is overweight and it isn't all because of a bunch of lazy people. We are poisoning ourselves. And when you're poisoning yourself, you can try the latest fitness, you can try the latest dietary approach. It's not going to solve what our body has to do to deal with these toxins. Our body has to keep water weight. It has to keep fat to protect us from various toxicities. So if you want to be healthy, fit and healthy, this is the podcast for you. If you want to protect yourself and your family, this is the podcast for you. And the person you're now going to meet is somebody who I think is a hero to all of us, Robin O'Brien. So we have our very own Anna York interviewing Robin. 
And follow Robin on Twitter at Food Awakenings. And another public service announcement in this one, go get your metals toxicity test. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Some of you may have heard me talking on some of the podcasts. Um, I don't know if I've done on these, but I've done a lot of interviews. You know, I've always wanted to eat in the most clean way. So my standard meal, very simply because I'm pretty crazy disciplined, is just salad and fish. Fish being a clean source of protein and fish oils being so valuable. But what I found out recently, and it's a long story, I won't take it time to tell the story here, but the bottom line is through a series of situations, I ended up having some metals tests to see how much if there was mercury in my body. I thought there'd be none. I had amalgams, which many people know have mercury in them. I had them taken out 25 years ago from my teeth. I found out uh, that I had some of the highest mercury readings that anyone has had in the United States, which is just crazy. And the reason is because the two fishes that I would eat continuously, because they were my favorites, was of course swordfish and tuna. And these fish, to give you an idea, are 75-year-old fish. They live a long time. They're deep water fish. They eat the smaller fish and they absorb all the toxicity and build it up over 75 years and then we eat them. And so they have a thousand times more mercury than some of the you know fish that are, are things like say a trout, to give you an example. And I just recently was talking to one of the number one cancer specialists in the world. And David was telling me, Tony, one serving of swordfish will elevate your mercury, that's how bad it is today, literally for five months. And it's growing every day. So we have to know what's in our foods. And if we know what's in our foods, it may not be thrilling to know, but you gotta know. It's like, you know, you may not like gravity, but you better learn it. You can, see, you can be all positive all you want, see it's not gonna affect me, but if you step off a cliff, you're gonna hit the, the bottom. And I have been detoxing for nine months. And what mercury does, to give you an idea, is just one metals that we can pick up from our foods, especially fish these days, is that what it creates in you is a disruption to the neurological signal. So literally, it destroys the energy in your body. It also, a lot of people who think they have dementia have mercury poisoning. So this is for maybe another later moment, but I just want to emphasize that, you know, we are what we eat, what we consume, and we better know what we're really consuming. That's what this podcast is for, and that's why I want to do this. It may not sound terribly exciting, but oh my God, is it important. So let's not delay anymore. Let's join the interview with Anna with Robin O'Brien. Robin, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much for having me on. So we spend so much time thinking about food, talking about food, planning our food intake, consuming food, but why is food so important? Gosh, if you think about food, it's so much more than just food. I mean, it has religious aspects to it. It has economic, it has social, you know, there are family memories that are associated with it. I mean, you can remember what you had for Thanksgiving as a kid, or maybe what you did for Easter, or what you did for your birthday. I mean, it's such an emotional thing. And I think, you know, you couple that with the enormous amount of exposure we have to it, whether it's through the commercials that we see every day, the fast food restaurants that we drive past every day, but it is literally everywhere. It's accessible 24 seven, and it really has taken over a significant amount of the time that we think about things. And, you know, for me, again, like the fact I'm even here talking about this today is so completely beyond anything I would have expected because I was an analyst that covered the food industry. I was a finance person. And so I was just strictly studying it as a business model. And I, you know, I found it fascinating that we could swap out real ingredients, swap in artificial ingredients. It would totally manage the margins and make it easier and cheaper for these food companies to make their food. But I never actually stepped back until we had children and thought about, you know, what is this doing? What is this doing to us? And if you think about it, all of us have these incredible food memories, you know, and then, you know, we also have heartache that we've managed with food and food in a lot of ways has sort of become a medicine 
for a lot of the heartache that people are dealing with in their lives today. And so as I really started researching this, I thought, wow, this is this is a loaded topic. It is not something that can be preached about. It is not something that can be dictated. We all have to come to it in our own time and in our own place. And the way that that impacted me was, you know, it wasn't even as a mother of four. It was when I truly began into this work 10 years ago, and I realized the enormity of the task at hand and that, you know, as a generation, we have this enormous opportunity to really rethink food and to really build out a better, smarter, safer food system. And that's huge. And that's not something that's going to happen in 10 years or 20 years or even 30 years. And I realized if I was really going to be on the front line for this over the next 30, 40 years, I had to take care of myself. And I realized that for anyone who really is committing to making smarter food choices and different food decisions, the very first decision they have to make is that they matter. And they have to believe that they are here and every single person is here with a very specific purpose. No two of us are the same. Everybody's skills are different. Everybody's talents are different. Everybody's passions are different. And you are here on this planet for a really specific purpose. And once you acknowledge that, whether you know what that purpose is or not, once you acknowledge that, then you realize, I got to take care of myself. I got to be here in my best form, in my highest form, so that I can deliver what I'm here to deliver. So, Robin, if you're committed to making good food choices and you've really set your mind and heart to, to that goal, how do you do it? How do you take that first step without instituting a complete change and changing your lifestyle and having an impact other areas that you don't necessarily need it to impact? So I will fully confess, I was a horrible eater and I wasn't the greatest even as a mother feeding my kids. And so I had this moment of just paralysis, like, where do I start? What do I do? I, you know, threw open the kitchen cupboards. I was looking at this stuff thinking, I don't even know where to start. I don't know how to budget this stuff. I don't know how to make these changes in a way that I'm not just going to have mutiny at the kitchen table. (laughs) And I realized, you know, that anytime we've learned anything in our lives, whether it's learning how to read, whether it's learning how to ride a bike, whether it's learning how to ski, you learn in baby steps. You start at the very beginning and you start to implement small changes and then you take on bigger changes and then sure enough, you're up and running or, you know, going down the double black diamonds, whatever it is. And I realized you have to apply that same step-by-step process when it comes to shifting the way that you feed your families or the way that you feed yourself. And, you know, I think we kind of live in a society where we think we got to be like all or nothing. And it's, it just, that's not a successful approach to making a change of this magnitude. And I thought, okay, so if I'm going to take baby steps here, you know, just the way we potty trained a kid or taught him how to ride a bike, what are some of the little steps that I could take first? And I realized that there were just sort of these key categories that kept popping up around our food. And one was the artificial colors that were in food were increasingly being linked to hyperactivity. So as a mom with four kids, I thought I got to address that one. Another issue that was hugely controversial that I didn't know anything about in the beginning was this issue of GMOs and genetically engineered foods that had been introduced in the 1990s. So I thought, okay, I got to learn about that. And then the other was, you know, things that were getting pumped into the animals we eat and the milk that comes from them, whether we were talking about antibiotics or drugs that are pumped into them. So I thought, okay, I got to learn about that. And if I had tried to take all of that on at once, 
uh, it would have absolutely knocked me flat. And so I thought, I'm going to take one thing at a time. And for us, the first thing we took were the artificial dyes. And I thought, okay, it's in the mac and cheese. It's in the yogurt. How can I start to get this out of my family's diet? And we did it in baby steps. And it was so important to not make the perfect the enemy of the good. And to realize that, you know, this is going to be a change we were going to try to make over the calendar year, or maybe you're going to try to make it over the school year. And so, you know, it was little things like instead of using the fluorescent powder on the mac and cheese, you know, we had the kids grate some cheese or drizzle olive oil or put some butter on it, you know, and it wasn't radical. It was just these baby steps. And then, you know, with the yogurt, instead of getting the blue yogurt, which, yes, I totally was the mom that was buying these tubs of blue yogurt. Instead of doing that, we got the regular flavored yogurt, the vanilla yogurt, and we just sprinkled, you know, toppings on top. And it was giving yourself permission to focus on progress, not perfection. And as we began to take those baby steps, you know, then it was a few months in, we realized, whoa, we really had made some awesome changes that the whole family could digest that didn't totally whack out our budget. And so that was, that was really how we began. And so, you know, what I would suggest to listeners is, Pick the one thing that you know is probably the low-hanging fruit for you. You know, the thing that you know would be the easiest for your family to either throw out or change. Um, You know, the diet soda issue. I was a total diet soda junkie. And as I started learning about how those products are made and what goes into them, I thought, you know, I want to be here for the long haul. I want to be here for for this work that I do, for this family that I love. And I've got to take care of myself. And so, you know, to to introduce these changes and kind of pick the one or two things that you know mean the most to you and start there. Because then once you have success with those one or two things, that success becomes contagious. And then you want to say, okay, what, what can I try next, you know? And as you do, just as we learned how to read as kids, you're really developing a food literacy and you're learning more and more about how our food is made, how it's produced, what's going into it, and then what your body actually needs to run at its highest form. So that's a good point that you bring up about food literacy, because I think that's something that in the medical industry, you know, people, when they go to read uh, ingredients on even things like CPG products, it's just gibberish, right? It's impossible to understand. And it's gotten more like that in the food industry. You go to read, to read the label, and you might have a tub of blue yogurt and a tub of vanilla yogurt, but how do you tell the difference? Well, how do you know that what's in your vanilla yogurt is actually better for you if you don't understand the label? So are there any kind of tips that you could give our listeners to help them at least understand what are some of the big, the big, uh, the big no-nos, right, when you're, when you're looking at additives in food? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, one of the things that I did, and I'm really thankful that my mother is actually from New Zealand, so I was raised um, with a lens on the world. And so I thought, you know, we have these American food companies and I know that they're selling their products overseas. So if we have a lower standard here in the U.S. and in other countries, they've said, we don't want these additives. We don't want GMOs. We don't want artificial dyes. How are our own American food companies responding overseas? And what was just absolutely the thing that floored me was that our American food companies don't use these additives in the products they sell overseas. And I'm just talking about your basic stuff, chips, noodles, mac and cheese, soda. They don't include things like artificial dyes. They don't include things like GMOs. And they don't include things like artificial growth hormone and this excessive use that we're now seeing of antibiotics in our meat. 
And I thought, okay, this isn't radical. These are two systems that our own American food companies are operating in. How can we help them lift here in America to that higher system that they're already implementing overseas? And so, you know, as a as somebody who was really kind of following this, not only from the financial analyst perspective, but then it became very personal, was the artificial dye issue. You know, that has been linked to hyperactivity through studies over decades. And because of that, American food companies in the food industry voluntarily removed artificial dyes from their products overseas. So it wasn't even mandated, it wasn't legislated. They just voluntarily responded to consumer demand. And so it was things like yellow number five, yellow number six. And it was because the combination of these food dyes and and additives like sodium benzoate were triggering such hyperactivity in the children that the doctors and the parents, anybody part of the study recognized it almost immediately. And so the strength of that science was so overwhelming that our own food companies decided to remove these artificial ingredients. Another one to me that just was jaw dropping uh, that we've allowed in the United States is an artificial growth hormone that is inserted into cows to help them make more milk. And again, as a mother who is managing a budget for four children in my family, you know, of course we want to make food as affordable and accessible as we can to as many people, but we don't want to compromise health and we don't want to compromise safety. And as we were introducing this artificial growth hormone, which goes by the the letters RBGH, as we introduced RBGH, recombinant bovine growth hormone, we were the only developed country in the world to do it. All of our trading partners, all of Europe, China, India, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, England, across the UK, they all said, we're not sure what introducing this growth hormone into the cows that make our milk will do over the long term. What they did see was that it was making the cows sick and that it was requiring an increased use of antibiotics in the cows. And so for that reason, every other developed country in the world did not allow it. And that was something that we allowed into our dairy. And I can tell you as a mother, the heartache in that, the heartache in not knowing that when I had been an analyst, the heartache in not knowing that as a young mother, when I had fed my children, you know, countless bottles of milk to realize, you know, we had introduced this because it facilitated margins and profitability for the industry um, without really checking, you know, what that long-term impact might be on our, on our health and the health of our families. That was one of the things that I wanted out of the milk as quickly as possible. And, you know, I had nights that were, that were pretty dark as I sat in a kids' bedrooms, putting them to sleep, thinking, how many bowls of cereal have I poured this milk on? And how many sippy cups have I filled? Not knowing. And that's when I realized, you know, all of these developed countries, all of our key trading partners, they're moving on science. And they've said, we don't want this in our food. We don't want this in our dairy. And so thankfully today, in any grocery store, anywhere, I'm talking Publix, I'm talking HEB, I'm talking Piggly Wiggly in the South, Kroger, Safeway, Costco, Sam's, Walmart, you can go into those grocery stores and you can find milk that's labeled RBGH free. And I think it is such an awesome example because it shows the power of the consumer. The consumer, as they woke up to this, as they got literate on the way the milk was being made, consumer said, we don't want that in our dairy. You know, none of our trading partners have it in our dairy. It's not used in countries overseas. Get it out of our milk. And the industry responded. And I think it's such a great example of the kind of push-pull that we can have with these retailers. And something that I've seen, especially in the last five years of my work, is that inside all of these big companies, it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter how big of a multinational company it is, 
the thing about what's happening to the health of our families, whether we're talking about the one in 13 kids that now has food allergies or the one in 10 that has asthma, the escalating number of kids with autism, the number of kids with ADHD, the escalating rates of pediatric cancer, these numbers, that can be paralyzing, that can be totally overwhelming. But the reason we feel all of that so deeply is because it's totally love-fueled. And what's happening inside these companies is the parents inside who have a son with autism or who have lost a sister to cancer, they care just as much as any of us do. And that as we connect, as we reach out to these companies and as we we continue to have these conversations to elevate this dialogue, they then are armed with a courage to go inside internally and start to advocate for change. And that has been probably one of the most rewarding parts of my work is to see parents and particularly dads, you know, get inside and really become these incredible compass for change inside these big companies. And, you know, again, I've said, you know, the consumer is your greatest compass. He or she is telling you exactly what she wants, exactly what she needs to raise a healthy family. And she is reading these labels. We were food illiterate. And all of a sudden, we're learning how to read these things. And it's being driven out of these conditions, out of the concerns over cancer or allergies or autism or ADHD or diabetes, we all are suddenly reading labels. And as we read these labels, like you said, you're reading the side of the yogurt jar, you're reading the side of a box of cookies, and you're like, what is this stuff? What is it doing in my food? And what is this whole list of 50 different things doing in combination to me? And as more and more consumers begin to ask those questions, born out of just such a sincere love for the health of their families, the companies that are responding are the ones that are that are growing in the marketplace. And I think, you know, again, it's it's just such an incredible opportunity as a generation to come together and leverage this and create a better food system and build out smarter farmland and better access and more affordable and more accessible and cleaner. And I think, you know, it really is the work of a generation. And that's where I think it just gets so exciting. So I kind of want to like go back to the beginning and, and say, if you're one of the people that's come to the podcast, like, why am I here? Think about the things that you love the most. Think about the things that always fired you up. And if one of those things is food, I can promise you, we need you in this. We need so many resources, so much talent, so much skill. We need it from policymakers in DC to people that are on the ground, to people that are helping you know, address the massive amount of food waste we have, which is 30 to 40% of the food that we produce in the world is thrown away. And there's so many ways to get engaged. And I think that to me is what gives me so much hope because this movement is such an incredible one to be a part of because there is so much opportunity. You know, whether you're talking about families with diabetes and the work that's being done there, families with food allergies and the work that's being done there, there's just so many ways to engage and be part of something that is so significant. So out of the, uh, you know, that's a great case study, the growth hormone and, and how understanding of the impact that was having on uh, on the milk and our children and, and how that, you know, pushed people to, to take action. Um, what do you think is the next sort of more particular problem, right? So between GMOs or antibiotics and meat, um, what is something that, you know, individuals can can grasp, but also something that you personally think is directly impacting our health and the health of our children that you are pushing for right now? You know, so that's a great question. And I've had the opportunity to interview some pretty extraordinary people, whether we're talking about attorneys or scientists who have been covering the food industry for 30 years. And uh, recently I asked a, um, 
a scientist, you know, what was his greatest concern? His greatest concern was the record high antibiotic use for meat and poultry production. It's four times greater than what is needed uh, for humans. And it's changing the ability of those drugs to work on humans because what's happening is they're just being fed to animals in a routine way. And that is one of his greatest concerns. For me personally, one of my greatest concerns is the excessive use of pesticides and herbicides and the things that are now sprayed on our food while they're still in the field. Um, The introduction of genetically engineered crops in the 1990s, there were two characteristics that were introduced. The first ones were Roundup Ready crops, and they were genetically engineered to tolerate a higher application of the weed killer Roundup. Well, Roundup is the weed killer that we're told not to keep under our kitchen sink, to keep out of the reach of children. The industrial use of that, of Roundup weed killer, is now going onto our food crops at record levels. And so these genetically engineered crops delivered higher sales volumes of the weed killer Roundup. And I think if you're a chemical company, that's a brilliant business model. It was a chemical company in the business of selling Roundup. They genetically engineered seeds to withstand higher doses of it. That's a brilliant business model. However, we don't know what the long-term impact of that is. And just last year, the World Health Organization came out and said, the key ingredient in this weed killer is a probable carcinogens to humans. And I think when you combine that concern with this increased use, it merits further investigation. And I think we're starting to see scientists around the world speak out on that. You're starting to see countries around the world say, we're not going to risk it. We don't want to use this pesticide anymore. And again, these are scientists that are withdrawing the use or the application of this particular pesticide on the parks, on the school grounds, and on the food supply in certain countries. And I think here in the U.S., it would merit further precaution, especially given the rates of cancer that we have in our country today. Today in the U.S., according to the President's Cancer Panel, one in two men and one in three women are expected to get cancer in their lifetime. Cancer is now the leading cause of death by disease in children under the age of 15. And that is just brutal, brutal knowledge to hear. I mean, when I first heard that, I wanted with every part of my body to somehow unpack that knowledge and unlearn it, but you can't. And to realize that, you know, we now have scientists around the world who are saying, how can we exercise precaution given the burden that cancer is placing not only on our families, but also on our economy and on our healthcare system? How can we exercise more precaution? And so the way that a lot of countries are moving on that is to reduce the use of these potentially cancer-causing weed killers. So to me, that is one of the greatest concerns. So as GMOs were first introduced by these chemical companies, That was one application. And then the other was so that a corn could create its own insecticide internally within the plant. And rather than wash off that insecticide, it literally is engineered into the DNA of the corn so that as the corn plant grows, it can release its own insecticide. And again, the argument there is, well, then we're not applying this insecticide. It's not in the environment. It's not on the soil. It's not on the crop because it's been genetically engineered into the DNA. And that difference is so fundamental to anything that's ever existed before in history. And, you know, the industry will love to say, oh, this has been around for thousands of years. It hasn't. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office identifies the first patent filings in 1984. And so when you suddenly have a corn that has been genetically engineered using this new technology to produce its own insecticide, that corn can no longer be regulated and governed by the USDA. That corn is now regulated and governed by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, as an insecticide. And to me, those are fundamental differences that were introduced into our food system 
that were not identified on label for consumers. And, you know, in the last several years, there's been an enormous amount of work to bring labeling and transparency to our food supply, whether we're talking about allergens or we're talking about the amount of sugars or whether we're talking about the labeling of genetically engineered ingredients. And I think, you know, right now it kind of got muddied up in Congress and a piece of legislation was passed that wasn't fully transparent. And my advice back out to these food companies that have asked, you know, what do you think is keep it on pack. The consumer wants to know. And if you tell her how you're making the food, what's in it and how it's made, that transparency is going to serve you well to drive revenue. And the consumer is your greatest compass. And so, you know, it's a really interesting time right now. And I think what we're starting to see is that the consumer holds enormous purchasing power. Together, we are so powerful. And these companies respond to exactly what we slide across that cash register at the checkout. And so what's starting to happen is these companies are saying, we get it. She doesn't want this stuff. He doesn't want this stuff. He's seen his best friend die of cancer. She's watched, you know, her child suffer from autism or allergies or asthma. They're trying to feed their families better, cleaner food. And the biggest constraint we have in the U.S. is that we don't have enough farmland that's organic so that this is affordable to everybody. And that that was when I realized I'm going to be doing this my whole life because I think the affordability and the accessibility issue for clean and safe food should not be a function of zip code. Anybody who wants it should have access to it. So thankfully, you know, we do have companies like Costco that are out there converting their farmland because they're like, you know what, we don't have enough supply. And we see these companies sort of taking it on themselves and saying, we're going to help convert the farmland so that we can give the consumer what they want and we can feed more families food that's free from pesticides and GMOs and artificial dyes and artificial growth hormones. And so, you know, the intent initially was like, let's pump the food full of all this stuff. It's going to help us get more on the market. It's going to help lower the cost of production. But it sort of has had this boomerang effect on our health. And the consumer's waking up and saying, can you please get it back out? And so, you know, it presents this enormous opportunity. And the companies that are really jumping on that are the ones that are winning in the marketplace. Are these the ones like like Kroger and, uh, and GM? Are, are, what are some of the companies that are um, helping to convert that farmland and, and source um, and provide? Well, you know, it, yeah. it, it's really, it's an interesting time right now because it's like, the food system of the 20th century is not working for 21st century families. Mm-hmm. So everybody's sort of standing there going, what do we do? What do we do? Mm-hmm. You know? And I think at the beginning it was like, is this a fad? Is this a trend? And, you know, early on in my work, there are plenty of people that tried to say, oh, this is just a fad. This is just a trend. And I'm like, cancer is not a fad. Food allergies and autism are not trends. And until that stops, this food awakening is not going to stop. And this need for transparency is not going to stop. And I think, the retailers are the ones that see it first. They don't have any skin in the game one way or the other. They're just going to, they just want to put stuff on the shelf that, that the consumer wants sure. that's going to, yeah, that's going to sell. And so I think the company that just has the greatest success story of that is Kroger mm-hmm. because back in 2012, they had a team inside that, that introduced this concept of, of the simply truth, you know, and just kind of an organic line that was free from hundreds of additives, lots of preservatives, artificial colors, artificial dyes, things like high fructose corn syrup. They said, we're going to do this private label in store, the simple truth. And in 2012, you know, they started at ground zero, zero in revenue. And that now is a $1.5 billion revenue stream for the company. 
they see that that's what the consumer wants and she wants it at a price point that she can afford. She wants it in her local grocery store. She doesn't want to have to take extra trips for it. And so I think, you know, that's what we're starting to see is these retailers are saying, this is what she wants. And so a lot of these retailers, whether it's a hold up in the East coast, you know, they're all developing these private label brands so that they can bring these products that are free from all this artificial stuff to their consumers at a price point that she can afford. So if I am walking down the aisle in my local Safeway, so I think Safeway, like Kroger, has also done a, a pretty good job of uh, an organic line. What are some of the things that I should be looking out for? Because it's a little bit overwhelming, right? There's so many. There's the the traditional, you know, Kroger line. Then there's the the um, the organic, and then there's all these other brands. So what are some of the food items that you think are very important to buy organic, and what are some that uh, might be less because for a lot of people buying organic for everything isn't necessarily that feasible. Oh, that's such a great question, and that was something early on in in my work as a mother, where I thought, you know, how do I, how do I finance this transition? And and I kind of where I started was, what do we eat the most, or what do we drink the most? And for us, it was milk. And so, you know, with four kids that had guzzled all this milk that was full of all this stuff, I hadn't realized. You know, I wanted to back out of that as quickly as I can. And um, you can look for either USDA organic certified milk, and that's that little USDA organic symbol. And to be totally honest, when I first started into this, I thought that was sort of a marketing seal. And what I realized is actually represents a legal standard, which means by law that food has been produced without the use of Roundup weed killer, without artificial dyes, without that artificial growth hormone, RBGH, and that those cows have not been fed genetically engineered ingredients treated with all those pesticides before they're milked. And so, you know, all of a sudden I'm looking at that symbol and I'm thinking, whoa, this represents a legal standard and this represents a very strong claim as to how this food was produced versus the others over here, which is really vague. And I thought, you know, if I'm trying to protect the health of my family, vague doesn't really get me anywhere. And so what's what's been great to see is that as the consumer demand has increased, the prices are beginning to drop. And you see a company like General Mills partnering with an organic dairy producer like Organic Valley to help convert farmland. You never would have seen a partnership like that five years ago. It is such a testament to the strength of the consumer and her communicating exactly what she needs. And so you see that USDA organic seal, it means there's no high fructose corn syrup. And again, that's another ingredient that was introduced in the 1970s. And the reason was that on the same day in the 1980s, both Coke and Pepsi together announced that they were dropping the real ingredient sugar, replacing it with the sweet ingredient of high fructose corn syrup, which totally helped their profitability and drive margins. And it's why when you go overseas and people say, oh, I had a Coke or I had a Pepsi and it tasted differently, it's because overseas they're still using sugar and high fructose corn syrup because of concerns around genetically engineered ingredients and genetically engineered corn isn't allowed. And so, you know, it's getting back to real ingredients, ingredients that, you know, a grandmother would identify. And I think we were able to genetically engineer and scientifically create a lot of these additives because they enhance profitability for the food industry. But if you look at the fact that the U.S. spends more on healthcare costs than any other country on the planet, you know, it's had this boomerang where it's like, well, maybe we're paying less for food, but I would argue that most families are paying a whole lot more for healthcare costs and not just costs, but production, you know, productivity is being lost because we're spending so much time driving back and forth to the pediatrician's office, going back and forth, you know, to see our doctors. 
And again, if you are trying to live your best life, if you are really here to elevate your game and get in there and leverage everything that you are to help move this whole needle forward, you can't be clogged up and stuffed up and sick and managing disease. You really want to be managing your health. And I think the smartest way that anybody can do that is through food. And so, you know, you realize that all of a sudden, like, these bodies that we have, they are the only ride we've got through your entire life. It is the only ride you've got. It is not a rental car. <laughs> so you cannot treat it like a rental car, you know, and you've got to put into it what you know is going to sustain it, not just tomorrow, but, you know, several years out. And I had a good friend the other day. She's she's really trying to kind of kickstart into a weight loss program, which I don't even like calling it that. It's just, you know, you want to be in your best form so that you can be there for your family or your spouse or your job or whatever it is. And I said, you know, instead of sort of like craving and aching for all this junk that she was sort of craving that was in this um, case, I said, think about how you're going to feel afterwards. You know, remember how you feel after you've done that and how hard you are on yourself after you've done something like that and know that you are so much more important than that feeling. And once you kind of can elevate above that and realize, you know, we are all here for a reason. We got put on this planet for a reason, all of us. And everybody's reason is different. And once you allow yourself to truly accept that, you're going to start to value this body that you live in and this ride that you have in such a different way. And, you know, I know that mothers can struggle a little bit back and forth, you know, of how do I take care of myself and also taking care of my family. But, you know, really to truly value this this ride that you have and put into it what you know is going to sustain it over the long term. And and I think too, like we live in the real world and I'm and I'm not one of those perfect people, you know, and that's not what this is about. Do not make the perfect the enemy of the good. You know, for me, one of my concerns with raising these kids, especially teenage girls, was you don't want to throw them into an eating disorder either. And so how could I teach them the grace and flexibility that they would need to navigate this themselves? And so again, you know, it was about the love that I had for them, about how I valued who they were as people and what they had to give to this world and why I wanted them to be in their top form as a person. And I taught them, you know, how they can make these choices for themselves so that they feel better, so that they think better, so that they're better in school, they're more focused, they're better on the track, they're better on the field. And they began to make these choices themselves. But I also allowed the grace of what I called the 80-20 rule, where 80% of the time, you know, we were going to be pretty focused on this and do a really good job, especially at home. But the other 20% of the time, I understood that they'd be out with their friends and, you know, just being teenagers and to have that grace and flexibility so that, you know, as they continued to grow up, they would be able to make these own their own choices in a really positive way. Sure. And part of being a teenager, too, is not necessarily being able to care about the long-term impact, right? So emphasizing the short-term impact that you would be sleeping better and doing better in school or having more energy when you're hanging out with your friends. It seems like that is a little bit more of a, of a selling point. So have you, I don't know, scientifically or anecdotally, what are some of those short-term impacts of, of changing your lifestyle and uh, consuming your healthier, healthier food? Well, you know, thankfully there are so many doctors now who are out in front of this. And, you know, what's fascinating to me is I've worked with the medical teams because, again, I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not. I'm not a doctor. So I've had to assemble the best around me. And, you know, there are people from around the world that are constantly reaching out, thankfully. And, you know, in our country alone, we've got these extraordinary MDs who are on the front line with this, whether they're from Yale 
or, you know, a, a dear friend that I grew up with in Texas who was a football player. And he probably was one of the most insightful where he said, you know, when we're in medical school, Robin, he said, we aren't taught food's impact on human health. We maybe have a day in all of our time in medical school where we're actually taught about food's impact on health. And so when our doctors haven't been educated on it, it, it kind of creates this void. And I think that makes some people really nervous. But I think once we just own it, once we just say, wow, the doctors didn't get educated on this, so how can we learn it? And my advice is find a doctor that's right there with you, that wants to learn it with you so that you can do it together. And those are the best partnerships, the doctors that come in and say, hey, yeah, we're learning this too for my kids. And thankfully, there are a lot of them now. But I think about like Mark Hyman or I think about Aviva Ram or I think about, you know, these extraordinary doctors around the country now, Dr. Frank Lipman, who's such a dear friend. And they really are saying, you know, things like your sex life are better. I mean, who doesn't want that? Things like sleep are better. Who doesn't want that? Mm-hmm. There's so many things that that once your body is running at full capacity, not all clogged up and your head's not all clogged up and your system's not all clogged up, or you're too tired or you feel bloated or whatever you're so much more present to give what you have to give to the world. And I think we think that it has to be this like crazy, hard, overwhelming thing to do. And it doesn't that you can start with these baby steps. And as you start to make these changes, it's so rewarding. Those little changes are so rewarding that those little changes then eventually add up to become big changes. And the thing that I've seen over and over again, which is really cool. And I know these MDs will talk to it is that, you know, once somebody does it and then their whole friend circle and their community and their families are like, holy cow, what'd you do? Mm -hmm. You know, I want to, I want to look like that, or I want to have energy like that. How do I, how do I get like that? Um, that is when you really, you just, it, it just, courage is contagious and that energy just infuses others to, to try to do the same. And again, I think this isn't about preaching. This is about, you know, we're, we're not here. We're not here to suffer. We're actually here to leverage everything that we are to help move everything forward. And once you're in that place where you can do that as a as an instrument of change, and whatever it might be, it might be in your church locally, it might be at your kid's school, it might be something bigger, it might be in the corporation, but we can all be an instrument of change in some capacity. And when you're running clean like that, you know, you're really able to accomplish so much more than you ever thought possible. And that is just so incredibly gratifying and it also really is so contagious and as people there may be people and this is probably something we should touch on there may be people who will be a little bit jealous you know who will be like well you changed and you're like that's that's kind of the whole point of being here you know is, is to is to evolve and elevate and become the best version of ourselves that we can be and I think food just plays such an awesome role in that yeah absolutely well, thanks, Robin. This has been absolutely enlightening, and I'm sure our listeners really appreciate all of the great information. Uh, if they would like any more from you, what is a good place for them to go? So I would love to hear from the listeners, and please share your stories. I find so much inspiration in your stories. There's also so much insight in your stories. So please, please reach out at robinobrien.com, R-O-B-Y-N, O'Brien.com. And then we have a podcast, Takeout with Ashley and Robin, we're constantly interviewing cutting-edge researchers, thought leaders, NFL players, same thing. And these conversations are so important. And so don't be afraid to have them. Don't be afraid to start small. Um, I often tell people the first time I ever gave a talk, six people came. One was a pediatrician. The other was a nutritionist friend. They ended up getting married, which was Ooh. so awesome and cool. <laughs> but I started really small. And yeah. 
don't be afraid to start small because big changes can come out of those baby steps. And so as you do, as you begin to create these changes, it is so contagious. So share that with me. Make sure to share it with the people that you love um, and just continue working to be the best version of yourself that you can be because it really is why we're here. And feel free to share those stories with me because I absolutely love them. They just feed me. So thank you. The Tony Robbins Podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins and Mary Buckheit. Carrie Song is our executive producer. Strategy and distribution by Anna Yorg and Tyler Culbertson. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Copyright Robbins Research International.